Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a rough nag. Free the black panthers. FCBP. Stand for free the black panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters, that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me, promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police, that 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers. If up the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here in the bill head up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, bullshit, I don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. Barack upped up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we're not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police department to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prison. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous service unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. Man, what an interesting day. Hey, look, I thought you'd appreciate my ginormous earrings. 
Uh, they are ginormous. And He's always surprised because I have no neck, um, Mr. Robinson. Dr. Robinson, I don't have any neck. So, yeah. Well, I, 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 you know, well, wait, wait a second. <laughs> you have plenty of neck <laughs> compared to me. <laughs> well, it's my relative. If I wear a hat, you would say that. Okay. <laughs> you're live on Facebook and you're live on YouTube. Go ahead, Sida. So, hi. Look at us. We made it. I think we may be through the glitches, the technical glitches. Welcome, everyone. Uh, we are really excited uh, today to be talking about something that has been extraordinarily relevant, uh, very much long overdue. Uh, a real conversation about reparations and and further uh, the fact that this entire country is is poised to have this conversation. Um, first of all, I want to kind of start us off by by saying that you know we are this is not about an, an apology because a lot of people you know think you know let's just let's just apologize for it. You know, and um, and when we start thinking about um, uh, American chattel slavery and, and what followed it, uh, we recognize that there has been indeed an injury. I'm pleased that uh, many have taken up this banner. Uh, going back, some of my people, uh, like Randall Robinson, I'd like to read a piece from his book, The Debt. Um, and he got a lot of pushback uh, for the debt. But at the same time, you know, it was one of those things that people we're not really prepared. You couldn't even say racism halfway around his time. So he says, our whole society must first be brought to a consensus that it wants to be, uh, and it wants to close the socioeconomic gap between the races. It must accept that the gap derives from the social depredations of slavery. Once and for all, America must face its past, open itself to a fair telling of all its people's histories a full acceptance of the responsibility for the hardships it has occasioned for so many. It must come to grips with the increasingly indisputable reality that there's not a white nation and this is not a white nation. Therefore, it must dramatically reconfigure its symbolized picture of itself to itself. And, and, and when he wrote the debt and along with that, uh, Quitting America, which is just extraordinary book, um, I was so pleased to to uh, read The Atlantic uh, that Tanahishi Coates started the conversation up all over again. Um, 250 years of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years of separate but equal, 35 years of state-sanctioned redlining. Until we reckon with the compounding moral debts of our ancestors, America will never be whole. The case for reparations, Tanahishi Coates. And of course, uh, we have Raymond Winbush. His book, Should America Pay? So it's not that the conversation has not been going on. I'm pleased to see young folks jumping in, like Coates and like Kendi and, and all of those brilliant young folks that are initiating a new discussion, uh, a new language around what is just and fair. I'm happy today to have Dr. Howard um, Robinson with us. He is a, a scholar. He is a historian. Um, he is an activist. Uh, he is indeed our brother. Um, Dr. Robinson, please tell us a little bit about yourself Ed, as we launch into this discussion about reparations. Oh, yeah, I think you covered a lot. I'm, I'm an archivist at Alabama State University. I, um, I teach history. I, um, <clears throat> I'm originally from New York, but I, I've, I've been in um, Alabama. I've, I've 
went to Alabama State University, a historically black college, and graduated from um, there twice with a master's, an undergraduate degree and a master's degree, and went on to the University of Akron and earned a PhD in history and with a, with a focus on African-American history. And so um, I'm, I'm back in Alabama. I, I was in Georgia for, for a short time, and I'm back in Alabama at Alabama State University, where I work with the National Center for the Study of Civil Rights and African-American Culture. And um, we have a very, very full agenda. Um, we deal with a lot of issues. Um, we do conferences and book talks. And we, we just recently, not recently, but we've been collaborating with the National Park Service and we built a, um, an interpretive center that, that, that looks at um, the Selma to Montgomery March and, and that 54 mile trek from Selma through Lowndes County yeah. to, um, into Montgomery. Um, and, and, and we, so we, we celebrate and we collect materials related to voting rights. And, and, and that is, a, I think, both an issue that had its importance in the 1960s, but also resonates today. Um, and, and that Voting Rights Act of 1965 was assaulted and, and undermined in, in this very state. And so we have to remind our young people, you know, that, that, that they helped change that law and, and implement that law in the first place and need to be a part of the efforts to strengthen that law, that law today. So I'm, I, I work with the National Center and- um, And you know, I was there, I actually been there with Floyd, right? And I was there when it was, you were just, it wasn't even finished when I, when I was there. Well, um, well, actually to tell the truth, you know, you spoke to my class. Wow! Whoa, whoa. <laughs> you spoke to my class. We we we, we met in the um that's in, right. that's in the right. Abernathy in Abernathy Hall, right. and, yes, and so right. I was delighted. You know, we had we we were my when I say we the, the the dean of the library, um, who's the director of the National Center, she alerted me to your book some years ago, and um and so we have it, it, it's what it, you you've written one of those works where where you instinctively say you know what you know I. Somebody should have, you know, somebody should have done this already. So I'm glad to see somebody did it, you know, and, yes, and, and yes. you did it. So, so it, and it fits into what we do in, in, in Montgomery. So I want us to, to, to kind of launch into a discussion around, um, and again, my book, I was, I was mentioning before we were on air about, you know, when I wrote my book, uh, my, my background is in health, mental health, uh, you know, really, really deeply into the community and looking at, um, you know, the, the, the wounds that accompanied uh, this, this whole process that we have gone through towards insisting upon justice for ourselves and equality and equity. But, you know, even now when you look in the news, and, and this was really a, a powerful, um, powerful experience for me. In my book, I wrote a story about my father. And you know how they're saying now, my goodness, you know, I, I was listening to NPR and they said, well, you know, next you know, racism, uh, inequity, uh, institutionalized structural inequality in farming. Next, right? So right. this black farmer comes on and he right. says, you know, he's been farming, he's been in his family, all of this, but he doesn't get the same amount of money for his crime. Right, 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 I heard that. He doesn't get that other people. So, so we have to understand, I've said this before, every major institution in America at its foundation, at its root, uh, is, is, is literally racist. I mean, we're looking at white supremacy being what held it. And, and at the same time, I, I move over and now they're saying, gosh, we're seeing it in the military. Really? You're just not seeing it in the military? It has always been a part of the military. 
And so they're saying these people, you know, are fighting for our, our country. But when you hear the story of black men and black women in the armed services, when you hear about what they in, encountered, read the stories of people like Sammy Davis Jr. And I, but my father, my father talked about, I'll tell you, this was such a powerful experience for me. Um, because I said, I don't care what anybody do, does. We don't have, we're not waiting for someone else. And we don't need someone else for us to take care of ourselves to the degree that we continue to heal and to make certain that you don't get to hurt my children and their children. We have to change that. But my father, I tell the story, I rarely tell the story, actually. It's written in my book, but I rarely tell it because for many years I couldn't tell it without crying. But I didn't understand until very recently, very recently, about why my father said what he said to me. My father was dying. And... Um, so all of us, all of my siblings, uh, we, you know, we were at his bedside and he called each of us separately. I'm the baby of the family. So my father's a Mason. So he gave me his Mason ring. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what that means. All I know is my father, you know, I, it's supposed to go to me and I can't tell you anymore because he couldn't tell me anymore because he'd have to kill me. <laughs> That's the kind of thing with the, the Mason. So he, he gave me his Mason ring. He sat on the side of his bed and he knew. He knew that these would be the last words he would say to me. So this was one of those true last words, right? He knew that he would never see me again. And um, the first thing he said to me was he said, Joy, the road of life is a long and hard road. He says, do not try to travel that road alone. You will need people along the way. And then he turned so that he wasn't his, his, I was looking at the side of it and it was deliberate. He turned his face from me. And he says, you know, I was a young boy growing up down the bayou in Louisiana, which is where my family is from. And he said, I was walking down the road. I was, I was a young boy and some white people drove up in a truck and they said, boy, get over here. And you load, you load these, these boxes, boy, and you do it now. And he turned to me and he says, and I did it, Joy, but I did it for you. And then he said, and then I was in the Navy. All my, all my uncles, all of them were, you know, were, were in the armed services in some capacity. My father was in the Navy. He says, I was a grown man, Joy. I was a grown man. And they said, boy. You get over here, you clean these shrimp, boy, and you clean them now. And then I could see my father trembling. And I could see the tear rolling down his face. And he says, and I did it, Joy. But I did it for you. And I remember, you know, thinking, these are the last words he said to me. So he carried the burden of that humiliation his entire life. And he was saying to me, had I not done it, you wouldn't be here, Joy, right? And so I never understood the extent of that until, and my, as being, being a veteran, we had a member of my, my husband's family passed away, and they were buried in the same cemetery as my father. And I realized, and this is in Riverside, California, um, and I had never gone back to see the marker. I'd never gone back. It was just extraordinarily difficult for me. And so this time after we, the funeral, um, I looked up his name and I found the marker. And when I found the marker, my sister-in-law looked at his ranking 
And because you see, you couldn't you couldn't have any ranking as a as a black man, and it showed his ranking. And then we went to the book, the original book, little weird book that showed what his responsibilities were, and it was to serve those officers. And that's what and, and I, I so I never understood where the all, that was all he would, could do. You could be a cook, you know. You could be and and again based on his rank because he was a black man. He couldn't get any further. And that was something, and here he was fighting, you know, for his country. So I think that um, for me, uh, it, was a, it, it was something I didn't understand. And as I think about the kinds of humiliation, the kinds of injury, and of course, that's quite personal. But we have to understand that this has affected us economically. It has affected us on every level. But what you cannot do, you can't have my heart. I'm not giving that to you. And so I've made it my business. Uh, to to look at those injuries and to heal them and to stop some of those injuries from occurring and being passed along. So I want to ask, start off with the question of why do we need reparations? What does that um, what does that mean to you um, personally? Again, you too, but here, um, what what do we want before we get started is just to say that. Um, you know, I hear that story of my grandfather. I know it well. And I think about the sacrifices that all of my grandparents uh, made for us. And I think about the fact that where we are right now, a lot of folks are feeling like uh, my age are feeling like Randall Robinson. They want to quit America. They're tired of this. It's, it's a level of exhaustion. And so part of what I'm wanting to also hear from Dr. Robinson has to do with where is the hope? when it comes to reparations. What is, what is the hope? Because if you can't have my heart and you've taken my dignity in so many ways, what are you going to, what will it restore? What is the possibility? So if you could speak to that, I'd love to hear that. You, you know, what comes to mind is, um, is, is really two conflicting or contending ideas. Um, one, Dr. DeGruy, I think is, is steeped in your research and, and, and that is this idea that, 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 that black people have been harmed, deeply um, um, harmed by 400 years, generational um, subjugation and exploitation worldwide in, 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 in a worldwide phenomenon that impacted millions of people and reverberated around the world. And so, but, but but black people here in the United States, just like black people in the Caribbean and 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 in the rest of the diaspora, but the black people in the Western Hemisphere experienced a certain type of of injury. Um, and so part of that 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 pull and that conflict is to admitting that there's something wrong, you know, that 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 we are not okay. Um, and, and you look at the historical injury, and you can see, I mean, just a, as, a, as a historian, particularly someone who's interested in the Black experience, you know, it, 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 and, and I can remember my maturation in, as a historian and how I dealt with these sources. I'm in Alabama. I, I worked at the Department of, Alabama, of Archives and History, so I could see and touch um, slave records and, and bill of sales and, you know, all, all these documents that, that, that reflect the, the experiences of Black people in this nation. And, um, 
and and so that is that reverber, reverberates, you know. Particularly, you know, I'm in Alabama. I grew up in New York, Long Island, New York, you know, and and so I came to Alabama really as a student in college to experience something different. Um, but and I and I, I definitely have experienced something different. But, but um, but those. The injury, you know, and, and you look at these stories and these accounts of of the, of the barbaric way that slavery was imposed on Black people and people of African descent, and and how people had to navigate through that experience and had to develop certain mechanisms to adjust to to that to that that trauma, and so so today we have to, on one hand, we have to say that we have to recognize this this. The, the psychological and spiritual impact of that experience, and on the other hand, see that that, that tension is that that we're supposed to like as black men, we're supposed to be you know in, in, you know um, unfazed, and we're supposed to be leaders, and and we're we're not supposed to 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 admit to you know weaknesses and 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 and, and, and foibles, and so. And so that, that here, and I think that, that that tension, or or in terms of pride, when you're dealing with white folks and not wanting to admit that, that you know, no, something's wrong, you know, there's, there's systemic issues that we're dealing with, you know, in black community and black in the black psyche. So so I think that that reparations can speak to that, um, you know, to 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 that dynamic. I, I also um. Um, I, I, have a, I have a story I would like to tell. We tell the story, so I'm gonna tell the story. Um, I, I, I was married. I met my wife while at, at Alabama State. We were, we were both at Alabama State, and and she's from Brooklyn, and I'm from Long Island, New York. And we met in Montgomery. And so after I graduated, um, we got married, and we decided to get married in a park called Oak Park. It's not. It's, it's right across the street, really, from Alabama State University. But at, at one time, this park was a jewel of a park, it, it, you know. But it, it's just a lot of grasslands, wooded areas. Um, there's a there's a little garden area, <clears throat> but it used to have a um, a merry-go-round and a and a swimming pool, a zoo, a little train. I mean, it was it was one of the one of the South's most in, important and impressive parks, you know, until. Um, there was a threat to desegregate that park. Okay, so my wife, so my wife gives me, we 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 decided. I asked my wife to marry me, and we just she says yes, and we decided to get married in this park. Well, I have some to dos, you know, so I'm supposed to go to Oak Park, and I'm supposed to get a a um, you know, permission to pay the little fee and get permission to have a wedding at the park. So I walk into the office. This is Blue-haired white lady, older white lady sitting at the desk, and I said, "I'd like to get, I'd like to reserve the gardens for a wedding on on August the 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 seventh. <laughs> and so she says, um, she says, "Fine," and she fill, fill, writes out the little receipt, and I pay her my fifteen dollars, and 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 then I check it off my list of things to do when I go about my way. Well. When when I was in grad school, um, my 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 mentor at Alabama State, Dr. Dorothy Autry, asked me to come back and speak. And uh, so I'm on this panel, and she she I'm in grad school now. She introduces me as an 
as an expert on civil rights. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> but I'm on the panel with, with, um, with this guy, Mark Gilmore, right? In 1957, Mark Gilmore walked through Oak Park at 16 years old, was stopped by the police, beaten, arrested, and his parents didn't know where he was. Right, he had to he had to give fifty cents to another inmate to let his mother know that he had been incarcerated, and she found out two weeks after he was in jail. Right, and so Mark Gilmore's mother, once he got out, now Mark Gilmore's mother was an incredible woman. They messed with the wrong woman. Right, she was involved in the in the Montgomery Improvement Association. She had raised money for the for the Montgomery bus boycott. She was she was you know a force. And um, and so she partnered with um, Attorney Solomon Say, and they sued the city, right? The city, the city realized in 1957, after the Brown versus Board of Education case, they realized they were going to lose this lawsuit. They closed Oak Park and all the other parks in Montgomery. They closed Oak Park for six years, built a fence, filled in the swimming pool tore out the, the, um, the, the, the train tracks, sold off the animals. So they destroyed that park, fenced it in, and said, if black people are going to be allowed to use this park, you know, no one could use this park. And then they channeled their resources into the YMCA to so allow white kids to have recreational opportunities through the YMCA, right? And so, and so um, eventually... They open that park up again. Mark Gilmore becomes a city councilman in the city of Montgomery, right? And um, and so I'm sitting on this dais and this talking to this group, and and I share with them that story. I say I'm sitting here, and I was able to go and 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 pay and get my little permission to get married at Oak Park without giving it a second thought. Because Mark Gilmore was beat, thrown in jail, had to sue, and, and then had to, had to wait the city out for, for six years before they opened that park up again. So, so this, and this, this is a relatively recent phenomenon, right? And so, right. And so these are the, the injuries that, that Black people have suffered through. And like you say, Dr. DeGruy, you know, to provide us with opportunities that we can enjoy now. That's right. And, and so, but, but, you know, and I look at, and I tell my students, the fact that you sit in this classroom sets you aside and apart from your, your, your contemporaries who don't have this opportunity or are not afforded this opportunity in the same way you were afforded this opportunity. You know, and so... So, so I think I think that 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 the injuries are 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 are, are widespread. Another thing I want to say about this, and 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 the park is a good example, because a park is is just one area where black people had to individually identify, launch litigation against. And then, because they had to sue the park, they had to sue. So the so the city lost their sort lawsuit, right? So they had to integrate their park. So what they decided to do, we just won't open the park again, 
because once we open it, we have to open it on an integrated basis. But black people in Montgomery had to sue and had to challenge the library, the public library, right? The schools, they had to, um, the, 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 um, the cemeteries. I mean, so every facet of life required an attack, a frontal assault, litigation, protest. You know, we're not talking, we're not even talking about human rights. For basic, basic human rights. Basic rights. Litigation. Litigation for basic human rights. I'm not talking about class action suits. I'm talking about individual lawsuits. That's what white folks made black folks do in this nation and in in Montgomery in particular and other other places throughout the South. They made them attack these vestiges of segregation and discrimination one by one. And so... I have a question. I have another question. And, And this is something that um, again, when uh, what what gets launched about reparations? Well, is you know it's just too hard. You know we who will get it? Who is it? Who's black? All kind of stuff shows up. But other people, you know, there's precedence, and we and so uh, in in a way, when I look at uh, where we are, you have this fantasy that white America has that you know I everything I have I've earned. You know I've earned it all. I deserve it. I deserve and I it. deserve it. I'm entitled to it, right? When we built it, you know, literally, when that wealth was because of the sweat of our brow, was because of what was, you were standing on top of us. And so now as these things un, unfurl, it's not that, it's, it's always been true, right? We've always known. So when you look at the insurance company, these universities, uh, uh, hospitals, all of the major corporations are standing on our wealth. And so it becomes a question, and this is where, you know, I, and I think, um, you know, I know that I was my father's hope for here. I was my father's hope. He looked at me and he said, somehow, Joy, I need you to, to somehow make it worthwhile what happened to me. And my father knew me. And I, and, and I, but at the time he was saying, I didn't, I wasn't even able to grieve for at least a year after because I couldn't even, I couldn't even understand what he was saying to me. He said, but tell me it was worth it, Joy. Tell me it was worth it. And so I'm looking at these, these things and I'm looking at the fact that the struggle we still have right now, you know, 2021, we still have. That's why they're sleeping at the Capitol, right? You, you know, it's interesting, interesting you say about the Capitol. I, I think I, I, Felicia Bell, Dr. Bell, who's 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 in at the Smithsonian in, in, in D.C. She was here in Montgomery at the Rosa Parks Museum, but but she wrote a, her dissertation on the black labor used to build the nation's capital, right? So these folks defile the the building that black folks built, you know. <laughs> And so, and, and, and you know, and I and I say that to say that that I, your point is well taken. When you try to disassemble the the investment made by four hundred years of, of of forced and exploited labor from the ability of this nation to rise to to be able to exploit its resources, right? So be able to to and, and you know, cotton was the nation's leading commodity. Right, it fueled cotton. Fueled the industrial revolution in in in, in um, the United States. It it was the reason why railroads were were profitable. 
It was the reason why the, 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 the riverboat system and the transportation networks were developed. It was the reason why these roads, you know, splintered out and, and, and fanned out throughout the South in order to facilitate the movement and, and, and you know, to, of cotton in, in the world economy. And so, and, and the financial institutions that supported that the cotton industry, you know, um, though, though the, the tentacles reverberate. The, the, the shipping industry in the, in, the, in the New England area that built those ships, and, 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 and so, so the, the phenomenon that is America, you know, was built on the backs of laborers, and a large number of those laborers, a large segment of those laborers, um, were, were enslaved Africans, and the, you, you know, in, in, um, in, in Edward Baptiste's book, The Half That Has Never Been Told, he talks about the economic impact that, that this system of slavery and how productive it was, that economic impact, not only in this world, but I mean, in this nation, but how it reverberated around this world. And so, and so for anyone to suggest that, that, the, the the resources the resources that were that were accumulated you know in the in the 18th and 19th century don't impact right. Right. You know, the, the economic engine that is today that is ludicrous right it, 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 you know so we always point to we'll point people will point to every day um, the framers of of the, of the Constitution our founding fathers so to say. Right and 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 the words in the Constitution, and what they have, um, what those individuals have bequeathed their, their you know this nation, right? But and and so we're supposed to we're supposed to understand the direct connection of Americans to this phenomenon in the founding of this institution, and and and, and what flows from it, the way that this that people benefited from the, the, the lives of, you know, George Washington and, and Thomas Jefferson and these other individuals. But we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to connect the, 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 the economic exploitation of, of 4 million people on, on, you know, on, on, in this nation and how that economic exploitation created a foundation you know, uh, 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 you know, for the, for this nation, we're it's supposed different. to divorce that. Like you said, forget about it. It is, and you know, the other piece to this, and I want, I want, I want to hear from you too, but here, but you know, you'll hear people say, "Well, I'm not privileged." <laughs> yeah, so I don't, I don't understand what you mean by white privilege. You know, I didn't own slaves, right? You know, and and, and again, because going all the way back to um, what what Randall Robinson and others have said, you don't even know your own history. Because we've never told the truth, right? So everybody gets in their feelings. They get upset. I just don't understand. Like, and, and I, I'll say it again. I'll probably say it every week. When people said, when all this stuff started happening at the Capitol, this isn't America. This is not America. Yes, it is. It absolutely is America. And so this whole idea of privilege and people, you know, get their, you know, their, their wads all up. You know, I'm going, are you kidding me? You don't think that 400 years of unpaid labor did not yield privilege? What are you talking about, right? And so when you see people now, and even in my life, you know, I, you know, I, uh, my mother told me now, my father told me, you know, Joy, you got to be twice as good to just get to basic fare. And everything I did was always the tension. 
every, everywhere I went was that tension that said, not you, not you. So I want to talk about what does reparations look like? Now, before, before you answer that question, I want to say that I've been thinking a lot. Ever since we decided to have this conversation, I started thinking about repair, right? Now, you know, being injured, being healed, that, that, that's one thing. But repair, let's talk about repair. So, you know, when you repair something, and I, I can relate to this because my, my daughter and I are very well known for our projects. We, we get on projects, we fix stuff, and we, we, we just like doing it. And sometimes when you're repairing something, sometimes what you need to do is shore it up. Right. You don't you go, okay, you know, there's a little rust here, there's some residue, there's something restricting it. Let's just clean that all out and shore up the, the actual structure. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you say, Well, you know, we're gonna have to replace this piece. We got, you know, it's not working, we gotta replace it. And sometimes you gotta replace the whole thing. And there's a lot of stuff that's in this country that we you can't fix it. Mm-hmm. It, it can't it, it cannot be fixed because I've said to everyone it's a perfectly working system. The problem is it has not ever worked on our behalf because it was never about us. But it does work. And that's why everybody was surprised because this is working. No, it's never been working for us. And so these structures have to be removed and rebuilt. This not it's, you can't fix it. I have people all over the country telling me, Joy, how do we fix police? Fix policing? Right. This, this, so again, how, what does it look like? Well, this and, is what you talked about when you talked about the, you used to tell me when I was a kid, you know, if you start to put the pickle jar top on wrong, you can't, you just got to take it off. You just, there's no trying to, once you're halfway screwing it in to make it actually screw right. Like it's just not, you set it on a course that is going to be off. And so I think that, I mean, I was talking to people today about campus policing and we had to change that to a much broader conversation about what does it mean to feel safe on a campus? Had not, because again, policing, the ideology of policing, you have to understand that. So the police that are all up in arms, there are some good cops. <laughs> the, the fact is your system has always worked effectively to oppress from the beginning, right? From slave patrols, from all, the way that you even got started was to try to keep me in bondage. That was the goal of the, the root, the beginnings of policing. So if you don't understand that, you're gonna, of course gonna say, well, there's some good cops. Yeah, okay. And there's some, you know, this is the same, well, the same way we look at the ideology of serial killing, right? Where did all that come from? And you go, I just don't, I don't understand. People have been serial killing us for generations, right? So what I keep thinking about, though, this is the thing, is it makes me, do you remember, um, uh, I was going to say Tales from the Dark Side, but it wasn't. It was the uh, Twilight Zone. Do you remember the Twilight Zone where the, the woman is, is, is every, she's wrapped in bandages and every time she goes somewhere and they take off the bandages, they don't show the audience the bandages. They just show the react, they hear the reaction. Oh God, like you think this one is horrible, right? And so she puts the bandages back on and everywhere she goes. And finally at the end, you realize they take her bandages off and they show you and her face looks perfectly normal. But all the people around have these really distorted pig faces. <laughs> and it was called Beauty is in the Eye of the Beholder. I'm <laughs> talking to these white people. Like you, like you literally see this. You literally, it's like body snatched people because like <laughs> literally they don't, what privilege? And I'm going, the fact that you're saying that lets me know you're a pig face. Like that's a like you don't have any pers- real perspective. And it blows my mind. I'm like, I feel like I'm on another planet and you're not. Pay, are you not paying attention to what's happening? But again, if the beholder is always uh, the person who's beholding what is beautiful, what is valuable, what is important, what is smart, what is deserving, if that beholder is always the pig face, 
it doesn't matter how normal we try to, you know, it, it doesn't matter. You're the pig face, and you think we're the ones. Right, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know what? You know what? I, so, so one of the things that I've done in my own research, I, 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 I wrote my dissertation on the impact of desegregation on Montgomery, Alabama, and but this is a longitudinal study, so it goes from the end of the Civil War to the 1980s. But one of the things I could not help but deal with was the criminal justice system. It was just so pervasive in the story of black people. And, and it was so um, obvious that, uh, it, that it was a tool of control. Um, that, and and, and, and I, now I, although I started in the Civil War, I had to go back a little further to sort of provide context. And then, so you saw this continuity between the slave patrols and the, and, and, and the organization of, 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 of police department and policing you know, particularly in the South, but more specifically in Montgomery, Alabama. Then I sort of traced this through time. And so, and so, okay, so that's the background. I, you know, about a year ago, I had my daughter, and, and so, so you all, you I laughed at the beginning of our conversation because you said that some people are talking about quit America, you know. So my daughter joined, spent most of 2020 in Nigeria, right? And then, you know, my wife was really concerned. And so she finally came back to the United States for about a month. Right? So she's back in Nigeria, right? But she challenged me and my wife. We, had this, we were having a conversation, and she challenged me on this idea of abolishing the police department, right? And, and so abolishing, you know, contemporary policing. And, I, you know, I was hostile to that idea initially. And... Um, and and she she just went in and and she made her argument and and, and, and to the degree that I am I am you know probably one of the more aggressive and, and, and you know uh, proponents of abolishing the police as anyone but but there, there's this and, and and there's this idea you know in in the in, in the civil rights lexicon that talks about the beloved community right and I tell my colleagues I say we are part of that that an effort to build the beloved community, to continue King's dream, right? Does that community, does that community have police? And, and do they incarcerate people? Is that the beloved community? Is that the way we deal with, with, with the ills of our society? And so, and so when, <clears throat> so in terms of reparations, I, I, I'm a little different, you know, I, 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 I do agree that that some of these institutions at their core are, are destructive and were, in, were created to, to control and to exploit black people. So that the reason why they are, that they look like they're controlling and exploiting black people is because that's what they were created to do. Oh, right, I have no problem with that. Now, what I do think is that, is that you can reform your way to change. If, if, if we're working towards the same goal, right? So because you want to abolish the police and, and you say, well, reform is just, it's just we're just reforming an illegitimate system. And I say, I, I agree with that, but, but I have the same goal. My goal is to abolish the police, right? So, so then, then our issue becomes how do we get to that goal. And, 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 and my approach does not exclude you from taking your approach, right? So one of the things that I'm, I, I started to do, you know, we, we were doing at the National Center, start to, start to look at ways that we could move towards um, the beloved community, which in my mind is a community that's devoid of policing and incarceration. 
And so some of the things that I looked at as, I and mean, we looked at as, as reforms, really the, the Montgomery Police Department and the mayor are doing, right? He, he starts rolling out, they start rolling out some of these initiatives. When I, when I, when I say that, I mean in terms of, okay, well, we're going to start looking at having um, mental health um, um, mental health workers start to look at how we respond to obvious mental health calls, or we the, this community has divested its you know its interest in um, community centers. We're going to start to we're going to reopen these community centers and start to refunnel money into providing these types of, of um, after school and extracurricular opportunities and access for our young people. So, so now, a num number of things that they are starting to do in terms of putting emphasis on having people of color, more people of color in positions of authority, and, you know, and, 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 and other positions in, the, in, in policing. So, so, they, so then what I realized then is that, well, you know, I'm not trying, we're not trying to convince an adversary, right? We are, so we need to work with these brothers and sisters and, and, and come up with approaches that, that move us to a common goal, right? And at the same time, be clear about what our goal is. You know, your goal might be reform. My goal is to, is to eliminate this, this element or this, this what this looks like together, you know? So, so, and then, but that requires, and what, what happens is that's, that is an expensive endeavor in many cases. Right, and and, and 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 our communities in Alabama is faced with this right now. On the plate, on our table right now, is to spend several billion dollars to build new prisons in the state of Alabama. That is that is happening, right? So the approach in Alabama, because the Justice Department has said your the conditions that you have in Alabama and, and your and your penal system is is inhumane and you need to change and, and, and rectify this and you're on, on the court order to do that. So how do they approach that? The idea then does not dawn on these folks to change the system, right? To, 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 to look at why second, second of the curtains these folks that we didn't do, that we weren't incarcerating you know, 20 or 30 years ago. No, their idea is let's build more prisons. But right. that's the deficit. That's the deficit thinking. Because right. you're talking about the beloved community, how do you create what you want? And that's what you're talking about. You can abolish something and, pre and create something new, but they don't ever think about creating something new that is effective. And you have, and you're talking about several billion dollars to do that, right? So, so it was no issue. The, the, the federal government came up with how to distribute the um, COVID funds. After they decided to distribute COVID funds, COVID funds, right? So the idea was let's get this money into the hands of the American people, right? And then once they make a decision, they go, okay, now how are we gonna do this? That's right. Which means you can do it. And if Which they could could do it now, they could have they could always do it. You could have right. always been done. You could have right. always helped shore up businesses. You could have always done those things. And we were told, oh no, no, no. But but you see, again, everything in the dark is coming to the light. And in my opinion, and again. It's not either or. You know, some things we can fix, some parts we can replace, some things we got to take out and rebuild, all of, the, all of the above. And I think that when I think of hope and I think of future, 
you know, we can reach the point, because I remember when I first started doing work around uh, racism, I would have people say, now, can you just not say the word racism? It's so controversial, right? Or, or they would say, you know, they would say stuff like, you know, um, you know, I, I don't, I think that what we're looking at is just a few bad apples. You know what I mean? It was like, you know, everything to stop us from having a conversation. So then we started having a conversation, and then folks started checking off. I'm good now. We've had a conversation, right? We're beginning to have the conversation. And then you have, you know, folks that show up and say, you know, no, we got to do better than that. You got to, you know, you got to stop hitting me, okay? You got to stop doing what you're doing to me. We can't heal if you keep hitting me. So you're, so resilient. you're so resilient. And so there's a part that says to me, so we, we come to that point of awareness. We come to that point of discussion. We come to the point where we, Black Lives Matter, you know, I'm mad as hell. I'm not taking this anymore. We had the protest. We do all those things. We say, now we have to implement change. When we start getting to that point where we have to implement change, what does change look like? And we can say that we want to get to the point where you just don't hit me. We can get to the point where you cannot legally do all these horrible things that you're doing to me. Or we can build our humanity. Are you with me? That takes us beyond just being anti-racist or being aware or whatever the box is that you're checking to say that we recognize the intrinsic, intrinsic worth of all people. We can do that. Now, people tell me you're just a hopeless, that's what they say, you're hopeless integrationist, Joy. That's what you are. But I believe that we have the capacity. You know, I'm looking at my children, my grandchildren, people, you know, these children. And there's extraordinary capacity, but it's back to what you're saying, uh, Bahia. You know, we don't want, we just, you know, we put some curtains up. We don't want to change anything. But I think uh, in the future, in the future, these these they will look back at these times and they will say, "What was wrong with them?" You know, all they could get to was, you know, you took a statue down and you want to pat yourself on the back for that. You know, and I'm not saying that taking the statue down isn't important, but I know that when I think about what the way the struggle, the struggle of my people, and I look at what we have done in spite of that, and I go, "Come on now, you know, we've got to see the whole world sees." And, and it's not just the United States. Anti-blackness, racism, I mean, when you start looking, you know, they got genocide going on around the world. So we've got to, I think, begin to broaden our perspectives of how and what we are as a humanity and think beyond just, you know, meeting, you know, getting the Band-Aid. We got we to get beyond that. We got to get beyond that and not just be healing, but be healed, you know, and keep, and move, be, have a trajectory beyond that. So in, in a word, I want to leave, you know, we don't have a lot of time left, but I want to talk about what reparations looks like to you. Just some ideas about what that is. And I know a lot of people have talked about it, but what do you, what do you see and what do you think about in terms of repair? And of course, we've been talking about that. Well, black colleges, you went to one, I went to one. I think that's a big piece. I just have to say that real quick. <laughs> yeah. Well, to add to that, I think we, you know, we had three, you know, 400 years. We couldn't, we couldn't be educated. I mean, literally, it was, it, we couldn't be. We're sneaking around trying to read, right? I'm saying, oh, you know, I could deal with 300, 400 years of education, free education, since we were, you know, we're deprived of that, which, again, we've never caught up because there's never been parity. There's never been uh, even separate but equal, even when they said that it was never equal. So there's always been, oh, my goodness, why can't you catch up? Why can't you? You know, and the truth of the matter is I think the other part, that needs to happen is we need to 
um, as a people, we need to start saying, you know, everybody ain't toe up. You know, every, everybody, why is it we are always placing this sense of deficit about who we are? We're doing phenomenal things, but it's never highlighted. It's ne- that's never the highlight. You're always underprivileged or something else. And, you know, black people are, we're not a monolith. You know, we are doing all kinds of things. Why can't we showcase those things so that people realize not only is it a possibility, it's happening. And right. it has always happened, or none of us would be here right now if it weren't something that we were always doing. So I think we have to also uh, become aware, not that we can, but that we are. And that, that is rarely even the, the script or the conversation. And, you know, that's why you have people go, my goodness, you're so articulate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think um, – I. I think reparations has to be, I, I believe it has to be eclectic and, and malleable. Um, I, I, I do think that, that um, you, have a, you have a situation where you see communities, like, and I'll, I'll take the community I live in now in Montgomery, Alabama, and, and there are certain ways that the, 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 um, the pathologies of, you know, of, of, of a, of our experiences play out in our communities, okay? And so, and, and like we, like with like with incarceration, there are two like obvious ways to deal with that. You know, you could say we want to lock up more people, or you could say, okay, what? How? Why are we arresting people? Let's address those issues, right? And so, I I think that you look at it, and some of the some some historians and some um, theorists have di- have done this. They've looked at the issues in black community and said, okay, let's address those issues. So I do think that that you put you put money into into mental health um, and, and reforming and, and addressing our mental health issues into into substance abuse issues into into education and providing meaningful opportunities. When I was in I was in um I lived in Savannah for for some time, and my daughters worked at the um the, the pools. They had like nine or ten pools, public pools around the city of Savannah that were free in the summer. Like you just go to a local pool to go swimming, these kids. And you have these kids, they just love the pools. Who wouldn't love as kids access to public pools? You know, and, and there are no public pools in, in, in Montgomery, right? There are no public pools in Montgomery. Um, they are just now, the, 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 the mayor, we just got a black man. He's just now revisiting this idea of community centers. Um, and then, then the idea of, of of you know job training and, and apprenticeships and, and you know so so I think I think reparations could come in a many a, a multitude of, of of forms and could address the needs of people where they are right and so and so my needs might not be as great as my neighbor's needs right and so I'm you know just like just like I didn't get a stimulus check right. Now, I'm not mad I didn't get a stimulus check, <laughs> right? I'm not, you know, so, and, and I've worked this whole time. My, I worked and my wife worked the whole time during this pandemic, right? And so for me to sit here and cry about not getting the stimulus check would be ridiculous. I'm glad I'm not in that condition, in that, you know, in that situation. So, so if, there, if my brother has has a need that could make his life whole and that could help him 
and, and, and nurture his children in, in ways that that that, are health, that that allows them to to move through this society in a more healthier and more fuller and complete way. I, I need to support that because then it, it it helps me. You know that reverberates for me. You know, so I think that that the idea of reparations needs to not, needs. I don't think it's a one size fits all approach. Sure, sure. and, and I, I think you know. Okay. Well, I was just going to say that I was thinking about what you said because I tried to explain this to my children. Right, we live in a place where there's not a lot of diversity, right? So a lot of times the Title I schools or the schools that have all of the culture-specific programming are in schools that are with folks who are struggling more than they are. But they want to be a part of that because they aren't going to see it anywhere else, right? So they're like, hey, so I had my child did some machinations to get into this low income. <laughs> I was like, how did you even get into that program? She's like, well... I told them, I found out who one of the coordinators was at another school, and I said, that was my coordinator. But when I got there, the woman recognized me because she knew you. And then she said, you didn't go to school. And she tried to But then she came back around and said, my grandmother authored a few of the um, – uh, she, she literally worked her way in completely illegally to this part program. I said, if you make any money in this summer program, you're giving it back. Well, they knew who she was. So they let her go to the whole summer program. And then she, she gave me a check on her check, supposed to be $400. So you can't keep it. And she found out that they'd given her 22 something. <laughs> and I said, I said, let's go get your check. Let's go get your check. That's but, it, but I think there has to be some balances because yeah. Yeah. we have to, part of reparations also is in in creating visibility for the potential for so if you are not you know barely making it and need to make sure that you're in free lunch program and all those things but you also say well I know I'm, I'm I got that together but I have this really strong propensity for science or whatever you have these opportunities to people who look like you in that and that and those so that's a part of it is that it's not everybody like you said isn't barely making it but everybody needs repair because of what has happened. Everybody has varying levels of need of repair. And how do you take that? Like I look at it and I can in my when I was in my the, my last job, I was the only black person there, but I could easily talk about white supremacy. I could talk about whiteness. I could talk on the West Coast, Northwest, I could say that all day long. I could say I could use and I know people who are in Nashville and Georgia who are like, I can't I can't say any of those things. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you. Uh, you look at me like you're here, aren't you? That's basically right. <laughs> you're here, so yeah. I, I think that there are varying levels of where we have to start to figure out the folks of us who who have privilege in certain spaces to use that to make sure we're uplifting the whole and that collective action, that cooperative economics, all those uh, Kwanzaa words that we if we hold so dear to uplift all of our community, we demand that everybody gets what they need. Right, gets what they need. Absolutely, and I think. I think the, the idea of, of harm that you spoke of, uh, Dr. Robinson, you know, uh, there has been harm. There has been harm. And the harm has been on a lot of different levels. And right. we have to hold these institutions accountable. It right. is not just, uh, you know, I, I didn't do this. Okay, I didn't do this to myself. Mm -hmm. And, again, those of us, and, and that's what I love about, I, you know, people know my husband will go somewhere. I say, you know, I love my people. There is nobody like us on the planet. <laughs> I love my people. And I and I know that those of us, you know, have gone on to do incredible things and building schools and provide we're we're doing the work and I'm excited about our level of attention and intentionality 
I mean, just collectively, you know, I, you know, I'm here in Atlanta, in Atlanta area. I'm in Georgia, really, you know, it's a whole other thing. When you're driving, there's a point when you're driving, you go, we're not stopping. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I hold it in because we, we're not, we're not, we're not stopping around here, right? It, you know, you know, we'll be in deliverance in seconds, right? So, we, I'm not, you know. That's here too. That is definitely here. Oh, if you are off the I-5 corridor, deliverance. Oh, you're in trouble. I don't hear. And a lot of people don't realize, you know, like you, I'm looking at all these folks that, you know, the senators and folks that are scared, you know, they're, they're, the first time in their life they've been scared. Somebody might Somebody might do something to me, do me something, right? But here they right. say, I go do. I saw a meme that said, I saw a meme that said, somebody got a, the, the white guy got upset with me at the grocery store when I grabbed my clutch my purse and I said, I saw your cousins on TV. Listen, I have, you know, um, there is, there is, you know, we talked earlier about historically black colleges. Um, when I was when I attended Alabama State, it, Alabama State was embroiled in a class action suit, a lawsuit um, in Alabama. It was called the Knight versus Alabama. It's a higher education desegregation suit. And and so the, initially, the um, Alabama State, the, the state, the, the city of Montgomery was encouraging the building of a of a, a parallel school, a, a branch of Auburn University, not in Auburn but in Montgomery. So that white children who wanted to go to a public school, public university, didn't have to come to Alabama State. They could go to Auburn University in Montgomery. And Alabama State sued and said, no, this was in 1967, 68. They said, no, this is, um, this is a violation you know, of, of, the, um, of, of the Brown case. And, and, and separate but equal is no longer the law of the land. And they lost, right? And all, Auburn University was, in Montgomery was built. And it did exactly what black folks said it was going to do. And then they sued again. Now, that's what I come, I, I've come to Alabama State. Alabama State and Alabama A&M sue the state of Alabama and say, well, not only you built this school to, to, to provide, to, to maintain and perpetuate um, segregation through the 1970s and into the 80s, but you have systematically and historically underfunded Alabama State and a Alabama A&M vis-a-vis or in contrast to, to Auburn University and the University of Alabama. And, and they fought the state of Alabama and these schools that, that black folks cheer for, like the University of Alabama, they fought tooth and nail to keep black people and black schools from getting an additional dime. And so, and, and, and so after a 20-year lawsuit, Alabama State and Alabama A&M won. Then they went back to court. They said, "Well, we not only we not only uh, are, are accusing you and have successfully accused you, the state of Alabama, of systematically and historically underfunding us, but you're doing it now. You're doing it with public education." Yeah. And the court said, "You're yeah, you're you're right. They are, but we're not going to offer you a remedy, right? Because they do it through the the the, 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 the regressive tax system in the state of, of Alabama, right? And so." So these, you know, so so we talk about like I was in school here in Alabama when the state of Alabama was was continuing it to to to, to attempt to segregate based on race and to to just to to, 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 to unequally fund black colleges 
you know, as opposed to their white counterparts. But the state of Alabama continues, and the court said they continue, they were continuing, to, to, to dis- discriminatorily fund poorer school districts, which in many cases are black school districts. Okay, so, so when you're talking about education and you're talking about reparations, these are the things, very tangible things, that could be done to, to, to funnel money into these schools so that they have the same type of, um, they could pay teachers on the same, at the same rate, they could buy equipment and they could accommodate their students in the same way, they could, they could have smaller classroom and more attention in, you know, in ways, and they could have paraprofessionals. So it's a whole sort of litany of things that come along with you know, these, these resources. So I think that the, and, and, and so those, those places that just recently under this black mayor, they, the city of Alabama, I mean, the, the, the county of Montgomery um, pushed through, a, 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 you know, a tax referendum, right? And, mm-hmm. and the people, to my surprise, <laughs> to, to fund, to, to funnel more money into the school system. Every but, now and then, every now that's, and then. that's when you have a good when you have someone who has some uh, I, I shouldn't say it like this, but you know some level of moral compass and actually is doing work for the community. You see what can happen. You know what they did? They found some Negro out of California <laughs> to come to Montgomery, come to Alabama, and lead exactly. and head up an initiative yes. to to undermine that tax referendum. Of course, they of, do. Course. of course, right. They always find, we call, we have a name for them, Stephen and Stephanie. They find you know, from, from Django. Remember Stephen from Django? Remember Stephen? Stephen. My only problem with Stephen and Stephanie is our mayor, our black mayor is named Stephen, Stephen Reed. <laughs> well, listen. We don't want to be named Stephen. The other Stephen, when they, they hired to come in there to mess him up. Wait, we had, a, we had a question. We had a, we had a one question that came specifically for you in the chat. Okay. Ow. Dr. Robinson, did you maintain your New York accent living all those years in Alabama? <laughs> I don't know. People tell me, I, people tell me I still have a New York accent. I don't, I don't, you know. You don't I, yeah. sound like Alabama. I, I went to school in Alabama. I, I went to my, under, I my undergrad in Alabama. I did a graduate school in Alabama. Then stayed four years. Then left and was in Savannah, Georgia. You sound like from, you're from New York. But you know what? <laughs> I can't, I I went to Fisk University, not that far. A, a lot of my people actually are living right in Montgomery now. Um, but it's interesting what you say around the people that I know who are huge Alabama fans. Oh, yeah. um, and I mean, they are, they got their paraphernalia, their kids in paraphernalia. And a lot of it goes back to, you know, you, you start to feel uh, anxiety because the things that you've come to love, everything has been poisoned. I keep thinking of it. My mom used to always tell the story, and maybe because I get creeped out by things like this, around Lansing boils. I, you know, I've seen boils later in life, and I they see my me grandmother. Out. That was that was a feeling. They freak me out. But the point is, we are all tell, truth tellers as people of color. We see underneath that beauty mark that you have, <laughs> and underneath the makeup and the hair growing out of it. We're saying <laughs> there's something pussy and disgusting in there. We're like, we see that. You're like, you see that shit. <laughs> Yes, and they're like, no, 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 no. It's a beauty mark. And now what's happened is the pus is oozing out all over everyone. It stinks, and that's what they're seeing on the Capitol. All the pussy ooze is what that was. Everybody's like, I have to use that analogy. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty pretty sharp. 
But you, but you know what? You know what? You know what? I, I, I have some. Um, I have some hope. Um, you know, they made a big deal out of uh, Deion Sanders going to Jackson State. You know, he's the new head coach at Jackson State, and he's been able to pull in his son. Other, I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's a, he's he's a new head coach at Jackson State, wow. and I, I, you know, I'm I, I graduated from Alabama State. I want Alabama State to win all the time, but I hope he can build a juggernaut at at at, at Jackson State. You know, I, you know, and and. Because, you know, we, we talk about reparations and we talk about what we could do for ourselves. That's right. You know, that's right. If I, you know that, this, is the only, this is my dilemma, right? My dilemma is that when I look at the University of Alabama football team, it should be at Alabama State. That's the whole team is black. I'm talking about the quarterback, the uh, the wide receiver. Oh my God! We're in Washington and Oregon. University of Oregon, Oregon State University. You know, all the players, black. No. But, I'm no. talking about everybody. I'm talking about the, the defense. I mean, I, I'm like, where are the white boys in Alabama? You know, there's the whole team. And the you know, so now, so now they play somebody like Ohio State. I did my graduate work at Ohio. You know, now, I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not rooting for Alabama, <laughs> but it's hard for you know the whole corn-fed, you know, white boys in the Midwest for me to be, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a hard thing. Why <laughs> corn-fed? Oh, some cows. Anywho, uh, well, yes, we have reached the end and over. <laughs> we always go over, so it's no surprise. This has been absolutely delightful. Um, I am so, and, and I am, I do have a great deal of hope, and, and I'm so appreciative of your work, um, uh, Dr. Robinson, um, and, and the education that's happening, and I know you have probably been to the, the memorial, uh, the lynching uh, memorial, oh, yeah. there, oh, yeah. you know, which is incredibly powerful, but again, there is a change in the wind. It is, there is a change, and during this time of COVID, we are doing the work uh, behind the Zoom. We are, we are prepared uh, and once again, I'm here to say we are not going back. We are going forward. So please be well, be safe, um, be the healing. Thank, Thank you. And Dr. Okay. Robinson, yeah. I have a feeling that you'd be great at a game night. So post-COVID, we might have to meet them somewhere. <laughs> I, feel like on my team. I feel like I need you on my team, right? <laughs> we'll have to gather together in, in Georgia at Moms or something and get Floyd. Oh, the campaign. We don't, don't have to be on my team because I feel like Floyd would necessarily be good. I, I <laughs> Dr. Robinson. I've been, reminded, I've been reminded to remind everyone oh. of the Be the Healing campaign. So oh, right. We have to be the healing campaign, and we have T-shirts, and we have hoodies, and we have what do they call? You know, I don't say the hat. The right. dad hats. But it is every little bit helps, and we do help and support uh, private and nonprofit organizations. We're always here to support um, uh, Black entrepreneurs, Black leadership. It is it is our goal. It is all part of the healing, and I thank you all for uh, for being a part of this and you know, viewing and then re well visit visit the um the Joy Degree Publications IG page and also um visit the um the Joy Degree oh the her Joy Degree Publications. There's a link there. There's also a link on her Facebook page. Um if you take a picture of yourself and talk about how you're going to be the healing, we will post you up on all those um platforms. So please do that. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um stay connected. <laughs> bye bye. bye.
Thank you so much, Dr. Ruff. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Okay. Enjoy it. Yeah, as you can tell, I enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs> so did we. <laughs> okay, let's see. I'm going to show it won't show my video, but it'll show my I'm on the screen. Oh, oh man. We want to see way, but that, that thing to show my picture never works. What? It never works? Never works. The thing that you tried to show me so I could have my picture up like she has, a little nice picture there. I don't get that. I get nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you. Good news. I fixed the guy from Calendar Wiz, called me. He we he walked me through it. I can just click on the icon of your life. And <laughs> <laughs> hello everybody. Hello. Hello everybody. Welcome well, back. You know After we're I- live because you know we don't know we're live. So that <laughs> you know we're back. You know we are I believe back. that even that if I turn this on and try to turn it on and see. Uh, <laughs> we're trying to help. We again. always have technical difficulties, but um, is it Eliza or Elisa? It's Eliza. Okay, Eliza. We're so happy to have Eliza here with us. What we're going to do is we're trying to get Eliza to see her live and in person. Right now, we only have this lovely stoic picture of her. Um, But you know what? Um, I was going to say, if you look on your actual screen, when you see the little camera icon, is there a slash through it? Let me see. Let me me see. It tells me to take a photo, choose photo. Uh, I'm going into the place where I set this at up, and uh, I shouldn't be at that. That's okay. If you go down to the bottom of your, if you look at the your actual uh, page, and you look at the bottom or the top, depending on what it looks like on your phone, there should be a little miniature camera icon. Looks like a camera. Uh, uh, let me see. It said take pictures, take photos. Nope, nope. Uh, it just should have the icon that looks like a camera. It looks like a video camera. No, no, no. Do you see where your mute button is? Do you see where you have a mute button? Yep, I know that. I know that. And I press that button. And it okay. say, uh, I can turn my camera on or off. And yes, do that. Turn it on. Okay, I turned it on, but it's not letting me in for some reason. I think I got something off. Um, let me go back and head to my lab. This ain't nothing but the devil. <laughs> We're not gonna let, we're not gonna let it stop us. We're happy here to have you. So here's what I want you to do: if you can just mute yourself, I'm gonna kind of set it up, and you can be working through it because I wanted to I want to kind of um, introduce what we're gonna be talking about today. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just yes, mute, she did. Mute she, did. she did. She did. Okay, did. We're good. Um, so today, uh, first of all, let me just say. Um, it's been it's been great having some time away, but it's it's wonderful being back um, through this period of time that we took the spring break off. Uh, of course, a tremendous amount has happened. I think what uh, is most striking to me and what is going on for me is uh, nearly on a on a daily basis, sometimes several times a day, uh, people have been reaching out to me uh, from every walk of life, uh, black people largely black men, actually, uh, that have been uh, asking me, that have been literally breaking down around uh, the trial, which I have not watched or listened to at all. (laughs) I want to be really transparent there. I'm not listening to it. I'm not um, watching it. I'm not reading uh, about it. Uh, But folks have been reaching to me, you know, reaching out to, to ask, how do you deal with the negativity? How do you deal with the bad news? How do you deal 
uh, with they're being triggered, they're being re-traumatized, uh, and that's part of the reason why we want to want to speak tonight uh, and to bring folks in that are on the ground. And, uh, and Eliza Wesley is one of those people uh, that we will talk about um, as soon as we can connect her, or not. We'll hear her voice if nothing else. But in between that time, I've been uh, people have been shooting me articles, and there has been an article. Uh, that was written by uh, Marley Kay. Some of you probably know about it. Uh, and I, I read the article a number of times. It's extraordinarily intense. Uh, you can look uh, look um, her up, Marley Kay. Uh, she does not mince words in her assessment of where America is right now. And I just wanted to start off by reading a few, uh, a couple of paragraphs that she wrote. It's, it's quite lengthy, and she pretty much, well, covers everything. Um, so I want to start with that. The world is cross-examining white people and white supremacy in America. White supremacy is under examination. White people did that. White rule is under examination. White people have abused that. America's criminal justice system and law and order structures are under examination. White people created and maintained those. Racism and America's racist social order are under examination. The white racist, mostly slaveholding class of founders created that. America's institution of policing, formerly known as slave patrolling and overseeing, is under investigation. White people created it. Inequity, inequality, and unfairness in America are under scrutiny. White people helped to sustain it. The trial of whiteness will end with the verdict, and white people will have to deal with the fallout. It's what happens in all failing states. The ruling class is losing power and they're doing all they can to pretend nothing is happening. White run state and local governments all over the country are building escape hatches and developing reinforcements in an effort to prevent the inevitable, but it will not work this time. People of color are also on trial. Derek Chauvin and his rainbow coalition of complicit brothers in blue are the epitome of everything wrong with America. Derek Chauvin is presently the representative of white America, but a rainbow of people kneeled on George Floyd's back. White people have created systems that pit us black and brown folks against one another, against our own interests. For a paycheck and some fringe benefits, white people have trained other people of color to be violent slave patrollers and overseers, police of plantations, communities. And a lot of us can't see the big picture, the career choices of people of color, are on trial too. Their anti-blackness will be examined as well. White everything is on trial. White apathy, callousness, and calculated cruelty of whiteness are on trial. The white smirks, white lying, white denialism, and white power dynamics are on trial. White men in high places are on trial. People of color engaging in gatekeeping on behalf of white people are on trial. The Trauma people cause, white people cause, that black folks live with are under, uh, under over lifetimes and generations is on trial. And finally, the world is watching this trial and broadcasting it live for their citizens to see. America, in a way, I, can, I can't say I've ever seen before. Most fir first world nations are not only watching, but they have also had journalists here on the ground in America providing insight, nuance, context, and racialized commentary on the cruelty of whiteness and the longstanding imbalance of power over African-American communities that white people have yet to come to grips with, let alone change. 
There's something happening spiritually on the earth that I cannot explain. If you don't have a spirit or if your spirit is distracted, you're going to miss it. You won't know until it's too late. The least of white folks' worries should be money or property. None of these things will be able to help you when things go bad. And things are going to go bad, honey. Um, Wow. When I read it, I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, and again, it's not for the faint of heart. Uh, she uses uh, her own expletives and is straightforward and flat-footed. Uh, so don't read it if you you know you're uh, fragile, uh, because she does not mince words. But what I appreciate about this uh, is it's is the is its global impact. What what uh, I appreciate about her is you feel her emotion, you feel her pain, you feel her her uh, her weariness, as as all of us are fearing, uh, and feeling. And and one of the things that I say I wanted to say before uh, we move on is why I am not looking at the trial, why I am not um, not doing that is I you know have to take care of myself and I have to um, be careful not to embroil myself in toxicity. Now, I don't have any real uh, faith in those systems. Um, can't call it. All I know is it's not over. It's not over no matter what the verdict is, because America is indeed on trial. And what we have to begin to do, and we have to start doing even more intentionally, is protecting ourselves, our families, our communities, our children. Uh, from this toxicity. Children are responding. Black children are being triggered. Uh, They are fearful. They are somehow, you know, we have to begin to uh, protect them from these things. And and that doesn't mean that we are saying and we're pretending that something's not happening, but we have to also recognize that there's a lot of real uh, heaviness here that is harmful. And we have to really be careful around that. Uh, but it is a conversation that grown folks need to have. Uh, we're going to have that conversation today. I also wanted to say something that never occurred to me is that Wellness Wednesdays, we're actually going to do some things for children. But I would not even expose children to Wellness Wednesdays that are under 12 because of the content here. Uh, again, we don't, we don't try to script what anyone says. Um, and we uh, want to just be careful to make certain that we are not causing injury. So those of you that have children that are parents or uh, in re- have some responsibility, please make just make a note of that. Now, we will also let, let you know about some of the things that are coming down the pipe that are going to be for children, younger and, um, and older. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to start by saying that, and uh, welcome back, and thank you for being patient and staying with us. All right. Hello, Eliza. Nice to see you. Yes, we see you. Nice to see you guys, too. What a great introduction, I tell you. That truly was a blessing. I would love if you would introduce yourself and tell the people Um, who you are. uh, My name is Eliza Wesley. Uh, I am the gatekeeper uh, at the George Floyd Square. was one of the first black African-American woman to be at the George Floyd Square to patrol traffic, to stop the traffic from coming into the square. Mm -hmm. And so that's who I am. I'm the gatekeeper 
at the George Floyd Square. How has that been for you? And and what, what made you decide to do that? What made you think it was your responsibility? Can we tell people where the square is in case people don't know? Uh, the square is in the heart of town on 38th and Chicago Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay. Um, known as known as the blood game, but I I got it known as the Jesus game. Mm. And so how I started out there when George Floyd got killed, that disturbed me. It did something to me. Um and so when George got when George Floyd got killed, I went down on Lake Street for about a whole week to try to help uh, DFA situation for that people's burning up the town on East Lake Street um, seven blocks and seven blocks over and eight blocks down from the George Floyd Square um, and so when I took care of all that I uh, went home and so I thought my assignment was over and the Lord told me that Saturday morning I need you to get up and go to Chicago and I'm like Chicago <laughs> Knowing what I'm walking into that in that zone, mm-hmm. you know, you got to know what you're walking into mm-hmm. when you walk into it. And so the Lord said, you is equipped. I call you out mm-hmm. because you is equipped to do the assignment. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, what is it for me to do there? Get up, you'll find out just what the sports in me. So I got up and I drove to the pastry, I drove to 37 to Chicago. And so it was just chaotic. It was just people driving through the streets. It it was just unbelievable. And so I got out of my car and I'm like, okay, Lord, you send me here. And I'm going to do your will now. You saying you're going to protect me? You got me? <laughs> so I got out of the car and started standing in the middle of the street. It was cars coming through, all type of traffic. And uh, I began standing in the middle of the streets and stopping the cars and we'll let the people come through the George Floyd Square. It wasn't even called the George Floyd Square at that time. So George got killed that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, me working out there every day and doing what I was doing. And so the city came along and they started putting barricades because they seen the people that was out there and their body was out there. And it was cars flying, going through the streets and stuff, and protests was coming down. It was just thousands and thousands of people, and people were about to get hit and stuff. So I stood out there, and I stood out there for 30 whole days mm. without no barricade for 30 whole days. And so I still stayed out there. I didn't even have no connection with the bar. I didn't even... Uh, 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 I wasn't even, my mind wasn't even on no buildings or nothing. My mind was just out there coming to do the work for the Lord. Mm-hmm. But God sent me on assignment. Mm-hmm. And when God sent you on assignment, you got to do the assignment, you know. <laughs> and so uh, they was wondering, like, who this data is? Just they just crazy. Just they just out here. She just um, ain't just not caring, just out here and stuff. So the Baha began to ask who I was. And I explained to him I was that God sent me out here. And so I build a report with the well-known people that people are afraid of. But God had me walking through the people and walking through the streets. And I felt no evil, nowhere where I went. Mm. 
And so I was uh, walking. And when I walked, God just opened doors. I mean, it, it was nowhere like I was trade. I was trade over serpents. You know, I was walking on serpents, serpents. And God just let me walk through this. If I was out there, if I was still no even, I walked that walk. All right. And um, been rough. I can imagine. I mean, I think what's amazing about making that decision, and what I think is really hard for us as uh parents and trying to model the importance of following your gut and your heart and your spirit in terms of doing things on the side of justice. Um, when it comes to justice, there can be no justice for George Floyd or his family. There can't be any. So it's just an opportunity to do what is right at this point. There's no justice possible. So I think the, the reason why I'm not watching is one, yeah, I can't, I can't take the trauma. I have to keep my, my heart light enough to continue to spread joy mm-hmm. because we deserve it as people. True. And to look at someone like you, who brave, woke up with something in her heart and her spirit and said, I'm going to do something. And so few people do that. And so few people know where, what to do. You had a very clear directive and you moved and you took it. And that that is going to inspire and give so many people hope because you are willing to, to put some piece of you on the line because of what happened to Mr. Floyd. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the thing. I mean, when I, I'm so happy that you decided to join us today. I'm really honored that you're here. Um, and I just, I respect you so much. I, my heart has been so heavy lately because, you know, to look into the eyes of my children, to continue to try to be lightened to them, when the world does not value them, when there's no um, magic button I can give them to keep them safe or to make them important. I was interviewed by this um, this uh, newscaster who oh. I run a program for Black families. And they want to know, what are Black families thinking? And he got emotional because he said, you know, when I, I turned on the news this morning, it was the first day of the, of the trial. He said, and they played that nine minutes, you know, and I just, and he started to get teary-eyed. And I was just kind of blinking at him like Dora, you know, the explorer. I was just like, well, no one is surprised. And overt racism has to happen in order for people to feel something. It has to be so extreme in order for white people to feel something. You know, and I said, nobody is surprised. You know, nobody is. And we're just waiting. We're waiting right now to see if maybe this time they'll do the right thing. But there's not a lot of confidence there. So we have to almost cautiously and be cautiously optimistic about what could happen. And in the meantime, continue to buffer our families and our friends and our children with so much love and joy about, we have to restore them because nothing outside of us will do that. So I thank you. The other piece. um, And and again, um, you know, when Sida, actually you're in my class, right? Are, you've joined my, aren't you in my, my uh, online cast? Yeah, I think you are in my on, online class. You're, 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 I think you're, you're uh, signed up for it. You haven't showed up yet, but you're signed up for my class. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, yes. I'm going to be, yes, yes, yes. I'm going to be in the class. Be like, wait a minute now. Uh, no, 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 no. Long Eliza. 
I got your name on. I got the list right here. Yes. I, I, I am going. I, I'm. I'm excited. Um. Uh, speak about in that class, right? And um, a lot of stuff in that class. Um, I'm gonna need that in that class. Yes. And so, I know this is an opportunity from God. Uh, because I don't communicate. Uh, with people about the things that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't communicate about uh, the feelings of how I feel that's sure. happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been able to communicate. So there will be a lot of things that I will be exposing to you guys that I haven't exposed to anybody. Sure. So it's a very class that I need um, for support and healing. Absolutely. And that's, know. that's what it's designed for. Yes. yes. And, uh, you know, my mother died so, three weeks ago. Ooh. And uh, Sorry. Um, um, I'm out here back in the field. Sure. Um, because I know that to be absent from the body is to be present with God. And I know mm-hmm. that my mother knows that I'm the type of child that God always brought me to be psychofishing like one of the things that's always happening in life. Uh, I'm a kidney donor, so live kidney donor. So um, my life, wow. it belongs to the Lord. <laughs> mm. it, it, my, my, it, it belongs to God. It don't belong to me. And so I explained to people that the Bible said, what man will lay his life down for his sister and brother? He's not talking about just laying down. He's talking about the psychofishes of your life. What can you do? Mm-hmm. And so this is me. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I want to be like Jesus. Mm-hmm. He walked the streets, the highways, and the byways. And that's what I'm doing. Um, I have a lot of tragedy had been out there into the square. Mm-hmm. Um, I have walked in bullets or people shooting bullets to save other people's life. Didn't think about my life. Mm. Um, I have been on that block to minister to the young men that had nobody rest yet. And I'm the only somebody can reach these men. And so it's a lot on my plate. It's a lot. A very lot. And um But you know you knew, you need you need some arms around you too. Absolutely. You need some arms around you too. And you know that that's the that's the good news. The good news and what I feel encouraged about is that there are people uh, from every walk. You know, I'm looking at people who are leaning into this from wherever they are. From wherever they are. And from various backgrounds, from all that are saying, wait a minute, um, I need to show up for this. I don't even know how to completely show up, but I know I need to show up for this because this is a pregnant time. We're living in a pregnant time. What it will give birth to, we all got to sit and wait, but it is a pregnant time and everyone can feel it. And that is what I think uh, that I'm feeling reverberating everywhere I go. There is this, and especially uh, with the pupil of the eye, we call, you know, we talk, refer to black people as a pupil of the eye, that black that sees and beholds the light before it. And so black people, every age, they are feeling it. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, what I'm appreciating is that there are people that are, 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 are just abandoning their fear. They're abandoning uh, even sometimes their upbringing. Um, and it doesn't matter that uh, we don't agree on everything, right? Okay. Uh, it doesn't matter uh, that we're in different lanes, but get in a lane, for God's sake, get in a lane and do something. And so, you know, when I found out you were going to be in my course, and I don't know, here if you can pull up the picture of I'm the gonna, article. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to try to look for it really quick. I'm going to see if you can pull up that article, which just real. I just looked at the picture and was toe up. <laughs> I looked at the picture um, and, and realizing, I said, here is this, my sister that is standing here by herself, but not by herself. Of course, you got the whole the whole holy concourse with you. Um, God is with me. That's right. That's right. There's a lot of weight on my shoulders out there. Yeah. And everybody depends on the gatekeeper. That means from the white. I'm gonna try to pull it up real quick. Let's see if I can pull it up real quick. We want to show show the audience the picture. And you see it? This is the picture. It says, "I I'm confident justice will be served." said Eliza Wesley, who has been taking care of George Floyd Square. That is that is uh, Eliza in front of that incredible mural uh, behind her, um, surrounded by flowers. And when I saw that, it just, and, and knowing that you were guarding that space, and what, what and if you could speak to a little, uh, because in the article it talked about some of the concerns of folks that may not want to do good there. Um, and if you could speak to a little of, of some of that, that's part of the reason why you're you're in that square and you're you're protecting it. Um, the part of not being good is like I said. Um, once again, the game bank. Sure. Um, nobody know how to go and communicate with the game bank, and um, I am able to walk up to those guys and speak gentle. And God have gave me the ability to connect. Mm-hmm. And so even that the people that's older generation than me, mm-hmm. they can't tap in and connect with that young young, young guy. Um, I told them that God brought me to be the birther. Birthed. We women, we birth. Mm-hmm. We birth. Mm-hmm. And so God called me to come out there and birth. And so um, my goal is to change the young brother's heart out there, um, change the things that they done went through in life, um, give them opportunities, give them chances. Uh, also, my goal is to let the white supremacists know that this <laughs> is real. This is this is real. This is you know we done had um, so many races um, in our life. I come from a racist background. I'm from Mississippi. And so this is, Minnesota is like a facade to me. Um, mm. Mississippi is still racist. And uh, like I told them, people, we are not racist. We are prejudiced. <laughs> y'all are racist, but we are prejudiced people because y'all put that inside of us. And I also let them know that they respect me because I am who I am. Um, I let them know that uh, I'm not here for to be your friend. I'm not your friend. We're going to make this clear. I am here because my spirit man like you, but my natural man 
don't care nothing about you. Well, there you go. Yes, sir, no. well, I'm glad you cleared that up. Just tell them how you really feel. That's called make a plane. <laughs> yeah, to make a plane. Sometimes but you know what, plan. though? But you know what? There's a lot of people in the chat who are saying that they, they appreciate you, that they, that they are inspired by you. Um, and again, you know, we sit here and we talk about the things that we hold as important, right? There's so many things that people think are so important about, you know, what they're trying on the day to day. They're on a grind to, 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 to um, I don't know, to get some sort of um, recognition from really, honestly, white systems, white people for them achieving what they're supposed to achieve. Like that is the standard for what we're supposed to achieve. And the idea, I don't know you, your work. I don't know your background. I don't know. I know you are a powerful woman who got up one morning and said, I have a job to do. I don't know what that meant, the sacrifices you had to make with where, where, you know, your work or your family, but we recognize that there are sacrifices that you are making every day that you are there and that you have no idea the waves of inspiration and love that are coming to you because of what you are doing. And if that is not living your life by the, what you've been called to do, I don't know what is, you know what I'm saying? And it's such a powerful testimony. It's, it's, it's your ministry. Um, it is is clearly your ministry, and I think that you know again when we when we look at who we are and what we can do. Uh, there's a story uh, of a woman who um, never ever taught anybody about God. She she never you know she just would work hard, and the people that would go out and deliver the message, wherever she was, she would wash their clothes. Mm-hmm. And she would darn their socks if there were holes in them. Um, <laughs> she would feed them. Mm-hmm. And in the end, there was a testimony of her greatness because that was her service, you see. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, we don't, we, don't, we don't see people. You know, I often talk to people about my, that story in Africa where, you know, um, uh, and, and it's a story that, that transformed me. It was uh, an experience that transformed me because I had my whole life been wanting to go to Africa to touch the soil of something other than uh, my American um, a toxic uh, land. I wanted to be there. So when I got there, I'm in South Africa right after the inauguration of Nelson Mandela. Um, I am full emotionally. And when people are talking to me, you got to understand they're speaking to me from you know, different languages, right? They would speak to me, but the language, no matter what the tribal language was, when they would see us, there was nine of us, and they would see us, they would say, I see you. Mm-hmm. I see you. And um, there was this, this moment where, uh, for me, of course, I, you know, I would cry profusely. <laughs> I would be tore up and cry. I would just, the people with me that were in the group with me, they, got, they were done, done with me. They were saying, you know, because every time you cry, Everyone would gather and sing, and they would start singing. And if you've seen South, heard, heard South African singing, there's just nothing like it, right? Four-part harmony, they're singing until you stop crying. Nobody gives you a tissue. Nobody, they just sing. And then after they sing, they also want you to sing a few songs as well. And unfortunately, I can't sing. Let's just make, it, make that play. I can't sing. So the women that were with me started getting a little tired because they were doing a lot of singing. So we get to this place, uh, we're in um, Lesotho, 
We're in Lesotho. That's where we are. And my sister and my niece have traveled with me among these nine women, and they had gotten up early to talk about me, right, because I was asleep. But they got together, and they said, okay, they got my sister, and they said, you're going to have to, you have to talk to Joy, okay, because we're going to Lesotho, uh, and we're not seen. Okay, in Lesotho. That's what they told. So when I woke up, I woke up with my sister. My sister is literally sitting next to me, waiting for me to wake up. And I wake up and I look at her. She goes, you know, Joy, we're going to Lesotho today. I said, yeah, I know we're going to Lesotho. She goes, we're not singing in Lesotho. So whatever you need to do to keep yourself together, you need to keep yourself together because we're not singing in Lesotho. So, <laughs> you know, you know when, when black women give you that side eye, you know, you know, so they would give me the side eye. So we get to Lesotho, and I'm all, you know, I'm prepared. I said, well, I'm a grown woman. I'm talking crazy to me. So I get in there, and there's, I mean, the, this was a huge auditorium, like, you know, six, 700 people. I'm saying maybe even more than that. And there were people from every walk of life. You had people from the government, people from um, the ministry, people from you know, tribes far away, all over the place. You had people from... You know, just everywhere. Everybody was there. So I was very excited. We were all warmly received. And what happens is uh, the gentleman who starts introducing us introduces me first. So he says, okay, um, you know, I, I come up and I say, hello, my name is Joy. He translates everything. I'm traveling with eight other African-American women. We're here to build a corridor, a connection with our African sisters. You know, not much. Thank you for inviting. Just sat on down. No tears, no singing. I'm thinking, good. I'm good. So he starts going on and on. And then he starts going on and on and on. Then the people start clapping. Then they start chanting and they start stamping their feet. So I look at him and I said, what did you, I, what did you say? He said, well, I, I was translating what you said. And I said, I know how to say all that. <laughs> I know how to say all that. So he says, he goes, no, no, no. What happened was when I got to the part where I said African-Americans, a lot of people here are from very, very remote villages, and they thought all Americans were white. And so then I had to explain to them that you were the, the descendants of the ones that had been stolen away. And they were mm -hmm. saying to you, welcome home, welcome home. And of course, I'm tore up. <laughs> so I'm crying. I'm crying. My sister's looking at me going, I I can't believe she did it again. She did it again. Whole audience is on their feet. Everybody's singing, right? So, and all the women are looking at me like, ah. So what happens is while I'm trying to pull myself together and there's a woman in the back of the auditorium that's making her way to me. She hmm. makes her way all the way to me and she grabs me by the hand and she said, did you think we would forget you? She says, I am from Lesotho, and Lesotho is my home. If I leave Lesotho, Lesotho is still my home. If I leave Lesotho for 50 years, Lesotho is still my home. Mm -hmm. She said, we mourned Martin with you, and we mourned Malcolm. She says, we are so very proud of you. You are African, 300 years from home. We just wondered when. You were coming back. Mm. It was, I cannot, even now, you know, I can see this woman's face. She actually <laughs> studied in the, in the United States. But at that moment, it was, a, it was a baptism, a spiritual baptism. It was a moment of clarity and normalcy and love and, and fitting. I fit somewhere. 
And it was a, I'd never felt that way before. And a room full of people, half of them can't even speak the language that are saying to me, welcome home, welcome home. And I'm thinking, my God, everyone should feel this. How, how is it that we can live our whole lives being ignored? But we can't feel it, mom. We can. And that's the thing that I think that we have to, what we have to talk to people about is reclaiming that. When we look at Miss Eliza and we say, okay, you have taken this, made this choice to step out here on faith, to fight the good fight, to connect with people who no one wants to connect with, right? You're doing the same thing when you're talking to these young boys and men that no one else can connect to. You're saying, I see you. And it doesn't have to be this way. I see more than what you've been doing. When I look at you, I see more than, than what you're showing is possible for you. And sometimes people have lived their whole life without people saying that you're welcome here. And what I think, and I'll just tell you, you know, uh, I was doing a, uh, a group for uh, some, a group of uh, employees of color. And this white guy infiltrated the group. He decided to show up. And what's so funny is that I think he thought we were going to have this kind of white hate group, talk about white people. And when we got the whole group of all the employees of color in this very, very white county, right, employees, I said, this is going to be a love fest. We're not going to, this unique time that we have together, we're not going to spend that time talking about white people or what white people have done or how frustrated we are with white people. We have this unique opportunity to be together. So all I want us to do is focus on what we have right here. What do we have right here? What sustains you? Who holds you up? And if no one's holding you up, how do we hold you up, right? And so at first people were like, well, I guess I wish I had not what you wish you had. What do you have right now that is sustaining you? So then people started going, well, wait a minute. I get to say some stuff. Hold on. So then all of a sudden one woman was like, I like being a chola. I want to draw my eyebrows on. <laughs> like, I love to talk. And then all of a sudden people were talking about their food and their family and how they build things. And we were ignoring the little white guy who infiltrated the space. Because it wasn't about him. It was about everything that we had that, and I told him, I said, you know what, I'm by myself. If I see one Asian person or one Latino person, you're my people. In that moment, you are my people, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we have that. We have the ability to do that in the face of white supremacy and systemic racism and otherism and exclusion. We have the ability to do that. And so it's so, so important that we do that for each other. So I look at you, Miss Eliza, and I say, okay, you're doing all this amazing stuff, but you are also in need of community of people, women, men, mothers, fathers, children who say, we're going to lift you up too, Miss Eliza. That's right. And how do we, how do we show you, how do we, how do we let you rest with mm. us? Mm. Right. Because, because you are welcome. And so how do we do that? And so I think we need to talk more about how we do that for each other. You know, how do we create space where we are saying welcome home in my space, on my screen, in my school, with my food, you know, how do I, how do we do that? And that is what I think is key in the midst of everything going on. And while we wait, we are watching wait, but we're not holding our breath for things to be transformed. We are watching and waiting to see if this one time you take this opportunity to do the right thing. But even if you don't, our survival Mm -hmm. and our greatness has never been dependent on whether or not people let us in the door. Right. We'll kick that shit in. Let's be clear. (laughs) So at the end of the day, I feel like that's what we need to do. We need to talk to people like, what do you, this is my challenge to everyone engaged here. 
is to think about, and I love it, Dr. Ruha Benjamin says, talking about beaming light and love into mm-hmm. one another. Mm-hmm. What is your, you're doing that for those young men, right? People call them gang members. They're young men who happen to be participating in some maybe unsavory activity, but they themselves are not gang members. That's not who they are. This is what people call low-income communities. What is low-income people? Nobody's a low-income person, okay? Yeah. The idea yeah. right. of, you know what I'm saying? But we have to start shifting how we look at each other, how we talk about each other, how we look at each other. They have potential. They have promise. Right? They haven't reached their full potential, but you are beaming those possibilities into them. So how do we be able to do? And doing it in a way where they can hear you. Mm -hmm. You know? Yes. They can yeah. hear you, and there's a reason why they can hear you, and the re- there's a reason why they can trust you. You're getting, you're going mm-hmm. into witness protection. <laughs> I know you can dark. It's getting dark in there. Like wait, it's 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 been turned in the nighttime wherever yeah, you are. You're on fire. You're in the car, right? You gotta you gotta maybe turn your dome light on or something. Because you're, you're, you're trying to you're trying to uh, keep the, keep your identity uh, secret from us. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I'm not. You know, I tell people all the time that uh, when you're doing the work for the Lord, you don't have to hide because God protects you. There you go. And so uh, my work is bigger than me. You know, he put me out there and I know that the work that he got me out there, he got me out there because that's the purpose that he wants me to be. And also, I am really the mother of the block. But I'm the gatekeeper because hey, that goes for white, black, blue, green. If anything happens, everybody runs to the gatekeeper because the gatekeeper can come and resolve issues that other people can't resolve, even with the white people. Mm-hmm. And so um, I started the people to pray out there. Mm-hmm. Um, when we have meetings at 8 o'clock, and we have meetings at uh, 8 o'clock at night, and we have meetings at eight, uh, 7 o'clock in the evening. And so they know that when you lead this meeting, you have to breathe in, you have to breathe out. Mm. You have to. You have to take your mind back and relax that mind. Mm. And so when we leave the meeting, you got to pray. I started that. Mm. Uh, it's a must. Um, especially with, uh, I don't communicate with the trial. I don't want to communicate with the trial because God don't want me in the altar confusion with the trial. And so I got to keep my mind clear and I got to keep my mind focused where I won't deal with the negativity. Right. Because the negativity could bring harm. Mm. And so God don't want me to bring harm to me. He want to cover me. And so I don't talk about that uh, uh, trial. Uh, I don't let them even talk about the trial in the square. They're not allowed to. So, um, like I said, I, I'm really, it's, it's, I got many plates and many shoes that I'm wearing out there. And that's because God gave them to me. And if he didn't want me to do those things, he wouldn't allow that door to be open. That's and right. so the door is open and um, I'm allowing God to walk me through. When I get up in the morning, it's like, Lord, I'm trusting you and believing you. He tells me if, if, if I, you get up and walk the walk, then I lead you and I guide you. And I anoint myself with oil every day before I go out there, That's right. you know, because I'm on a spiritual battle. There you go. There you go. So, so let me ask you a question. Are there ways that people can support this effort? Yeah. Are there ways? What What is it that that you need to continue to help you do what you do? I mean, like I tell people, you know, whatever people want to pour into me, they pour into me because the simple fact is that I don't. Act, 
Jesus said, let your light be shine in your walk. And if people's going to do something for you, they're going to do it. Um, I'm about the only person that, uh, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't do the TV things. I, I mm-hmm. shut that down. I don't do, uh, I want to be seen. No, 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 no. I don't do that. And so now they're trying to force me and push me uh, when you need to. No, 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 no. The movement is whatever God has for me is for me. Right. And whatever God wants me to do, I'm going to do it. So I don't have to be on the front line. I don't have to be seen because God said he will let your good be spoken of among to me to see your good work. 